how do they do it all they take the road less traveled and that becomes a source of inspiration to everybody else in this podcast i want to acknowledge and thank our knowledge partners the society for human resources management which is the voice of everything which is important in the world of work our other knowledge partner is tagged that is t a g g d a digital ready platform that makes talent acquisition on demand a reality and me i am abhijit bhadri i work with organizations and leaders on their leadership talent and culture this is just the subject of a book that i've recently written which is called dreamers, dreamers and, unicorns. and unicorns i also coach individuals who are navigating shifts in their career the greatest source of untapped energy is the innovation potential that exists inside organizations right around the world and leaders have tried many different ways to liberate and harness this energy by taking treks to silicon valley global contests inviting speakers corporate accelerators huge investments in innovation capabilities and still most organizations would admit behind closed doors that they have struggled to create truly innovative cultures this is exactly the reason why this book eat sleep innovate caught my attention it lays out a system level way to encourage and enable people to think and act beyond the obvious beyond the status quo the book believes that success requires focusing on changing people's daily habits and then making sure they stick and scale it is a little bit like saying it is not enough to take new year resolutions but you have to change the daily habits that is going to make sure that you live up to those resolutions that you've made scott anthony is one of the four authors of the book eat sleep innovate and i talked to him about what we can do to learn from his experience of documenting so many different ways in which organizations and individuals can be innovative so scott welcome to the show scott welcome to the podcast it's lovely to have you here thank you very much it's lovely to be here scott um, i want to first understand that uh, you know when you were selected for this uh, thinkers 50 which is such a phenomenal achievement how did you celebrate what did you do that evening well you know it was uh, about a year ago to this date we're talking in the middle of, of november in 2020 and of course the world was very different a year ago we had not heard of this thing called covid-19 and so on so i i was in london for the award ceremony i happened to be surrounded by colleagues and friends and We had a nice toast when the, the ranking came out and then we might have had another one and might have even had one more after that and there were just some great people in the audience mentors and friends people like Vijay Govindarajan and Roger Martin and Rita McGrath and, and and a range of others it was a great night and then the next day 
I happened to be in Paris for some business development activities, and I had one night in Paris. It was just me, so I, I went out to dinner on my own, but it was a very nice Parisian dinner, and that was a, a nice 24 hours. And then back to Singapore, where I could celebrate properly with friends, colleagues, and, and family. Oh, well, it must have been really uh, fantastic to be back home and announce to the family, look, honey, this is what I got. Um well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the book that you've written. I really enjoyed reading the book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate. What was the thought behind that book? You know, uh, there's so much of talk about everyone uh, talks about every innovation as disruptive innovation. That word is, uh, uh, you know, used so loosely today. What exactly do you define as uh, disruptive innovation? Well, so let me start with innovation broadly and then disruptive innovation specifically, because it is a really important distinction. So we define innovation broadly as something different that creates value. It's an intentionally vague definition that leaves room for lots of different ways to innovate, whether it be the big breakthrough things or the more day-to-day, everyday innovations. Disruptive Innovation, our organization, Innosite, was co-founded by the late, great Harvard Business School professor, Clayton Christensen, who, of course, brought that phrase, disruptive innovation, to the business lexicon. We define a disruptive innovation as one that creates a new market or transforms an existing one by making the complex simple or the expensive affordable. The essence of disruptive innovation is finding ways to democratize and open up new markets with an enabling technology that simplifies and a business model that allows the innovator to prosper at the price points required to go and open up markets. And there's a lot of nuances in the way that we look at disruptive innovation that we could spend an entire podcast talking about, which I don't think we will because that would be... <laughs> but we could. No, no. But, but I like that whole idea that, you know, bringing something, uh, making it, uh, you know, accessible to a wider range of people who otherwise wouldn't have uh, had opportunity to use that would be one way of defining... Um, uh, innovation. Is innovation and creativity, are these two linked? I mean, are creative people more innovative or, you know, can anyone be more innovative? What's your take? Yeah, so absolutely the two ideas, creativity and innovation are linked. So something different that creates value. Creativity is the input into the journey that results in doing something different that creates value. So of course, you have to have the creative spark to ultimately innovate. But one of the big points that we make in the book, and one of the things that you will see in research around creativity, innovation, and so on, is this is not magical. It's not mysterious. It's a set of disciplines that anyone can follow, anyone can measure, anyone can manage, anyone can get better at with careful practice. Do you need to have some kind of special DNA, God-given talent, or whatever to be a Steve Jobs but anybody can be a competent innovator. Anybody can boost their creativity if they think about it and approach it in the right way. Innovation is anything different that creates value. Now, that could be something which is a big breakthrough. So imagine spelling innovation with a capital I. Or it could be something much more mundane, much more everyday, something minor, in which case maybe think about spelling innovation with the small case I. If you want to start a corporate innovation program or you yourself want to be more innovative, there are two simple ways in which you can get started. Figure out a way to make something which was expensive into something really affordable and thereby create a brand new market altogether. Or you can even simplify something which is complex so that, again, in a very different way, it makes it accessible to a lot more people. When you talk to people who study innovation, they will often talk about the role that chances play. You know, it's a chance combination of two different ideas that often create something really innovative. Take, for example, the career choice that Scott made. 
He had gone to Harvard Business School after spending time at McKinsey, but really, the act of signing up for a class being offered by Clay Christensen, who'd remember, was not that famous at the point of time when this class was being offered. In fact, the class itself was just getting framed. Signing up for that class created a completely different pathway for the career that Scott is pursuing even today. It led to his obsession with innovation. So how did you get involved in this whole uh, field of innovation and creativity? So my origin story traces back about 20 years ago. At the time, I was a second year student at the Harvard Business School. It was the, the fall of 2000. And I didn't know what I wanted to do after graduation. I had worked at a big consulting company, McKinsey & Company, before going to business school. I tried out a startup that was trying to launch a satellite media business. Neither of those spoke to me, so I knew I wanted to do something different after graduation. And then in the fall of my second year, I took a class taught by Clayton Christensen. It was the first version of a class that ultimately became called Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. He had never taught it before. It wasn't a hugely in-demand class because it was a prototype. But within about one lecture, I had fallen in love with Christensen's ideas. And I just wanted to see what I could do to continue to advance his research and thinking. So after I graduated, I spent two years as a researcher for Christensen. We wrote a book together, among other things. And then in 2003, I joined the company in a site that he had founded back in 2000. And 17 years later, here I am. Phenomenal. What was it like to work with, uh, um, you know, Clayton Christensen, somebody who's really Really defined what we today think of as when we think about disruption, a word that he sort of really uh, explained. What was it like to work with him? You know, it really was a phenomenal experience because the time when I was working with him is when he was still kind of Clayton Christensen in lowercase letters. You know, he'd written <laughs> the Thinker's Dilemma, so people knew who he was, but you know, he ultimately would be named by Thinker's 50 as the world's number one management thinker. Back-to-back -back, times they gave out the award, he's in the Thinker's 50 Hall of Fame now. So he became this kind of supernova kind of after I worked with him. I didn't cause that, obviously. I just happened to be with him beforehand. What that meant is I just got a lot of time with him. And I got to see the way that his brain worked on ideas. And a couple of things that I really learned from him is he was just always thinking. He was always refining. He was always prototyping. And he would ultimately come up with these things that were so elegantly clear and so elegantly simple that would be communicated masterfully. But that's only because he had worked like crazy to refine them. Then the other thing that really struck me is he was always looking for things that didn't fit. Whenever he found an anomaly. Give me an example of that. Of, of an anomaly. So when the Apple iPhone came out in 2007, there's a famous interview in Bloomberg Business Week where Christensen said it's going to fail because it looks like a late entrant with a sustaining technology in an established market where you've got the research in motion BlackBerry, you've got the Trio smartphone and so on. So I predict it's not going to succeed. And of course, he was dead wrong about that prediction. So the question he asked is why? What, what did I not understand? And, and the thing that he ultimately came to a conclusion in that particular case is he had framed the Apple iPhone compared to other smartphones rather than looking at it compared to computers. And the way he then reframed it is what the iPhone really did was democratize computing by putting a personal computer in your pocket. The other thing we then talked about after that is the other thing that's unique about the iPhone story is it really is the integrated business model that Apple introduced that also had the iTunes ability to get music and then the App Store ability to put new apps on the phone. That integrated model is what really allowed it to break free from the pack. So that kind of thing saying, I thought it was going to be this, it was that instead. Sometimes researchers get very defensive when things like that happen. 
But Clay was always seeking to learn. And the anomalies, he said, helped make the theories and models better. So, uh, you know, if I were to sort of look at uh, taking that to an organizational setting, what are some of the things that you would advise, uh, you know, that organization should do to keep that kind of humility, in, uh, you know, um, uh, out there? Because it's very easy for people to forget um, that, you know, they need to stay humble. You know, and that's hard to continue to be. Absolutely. What, What's your recommendation? So if I could get it just almost plain language, idiot simple, the number one thing to do would be to follow the guidance from Steve Blank and some of his books is to just get out of the building and make sure you spend time not with your best customers, not in your mainstream markets, but really at the edges, the periphery, the fringes, where disruption always takes root. The thing that gets people in trouble is when you turn your eyes inwards and you're only getting signals from your most loyal employees who tell you what you want to hear from the data, which reports what happened four or five years ago, or from your very best customers who will tell you to keep doing what you're currently doing, you will miss the big shifts in your marketplace. It's one of the things that I think Satya Nadella has done an exceedingly good job at at Microsoft. He's really said, we need to look not at lagging indicators, but leading indicators. We've got to get out of the building. We've got to spend time in market. And we have to have a growth mindset where we're always questioning and always looking for new things to do. So when you think about, uh, let's say, if I'm a small entrepreneur, uh, and how do I know what is, uh, what is the definition of uh, the, you know, at the edge? You said, go out there at the edge. Give me an example of what I should be doing. Uh, it's it's very simple. You know, it's channeling the William Gibson line. The future's already arrived. It's just not very evenly distributed. I'll just give you a personal example. I've got four kids. The oldest is about to turn 15. The youngest is four. So I spend time with them. And I look at how they're consuming things like TikTok, the way that they're communicating with the friends, the way that they have organized their life in the midst of a pandemic, the way that they're using tools in new ways. So this is not something that has encroached into the day-to-day -day part of the business world, but it will be mainstream in the future. So if you're a parent with kids, spend time with your kids, <laughs> see what they're actually doing, do it side by side with them, because that is a really easy way to see what the future is going to look like. If you don't have kids, figure out a way that's not creepy to understand what children are, are doing these days. I mean, that's a, a really simple way to bring the idea to life. Yeah, so uh, talking to people who are, uh, in a completely different demographic seems to be, you know, the broad idea that if I'm, let's say if I'm really, you know, of a certain age, if I'm 15, then spending time with somebody, uh, you know, somebody who's much younger uh, is probably the idea that you're talking about. So uh, that's that's probably one. I also noticed that in your book, um, uh, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, you talk about examples of uh, different companies where you've seen these ideas at work. Uh, is there an example from India that you can talk about? Yeah, so, you know, what, one of the things we, we highlight from India, and there's, of course, a lot that you could, but we do highlight Tata, and one of the things that it does to encourage innovation, which is its iconic Dare to Try prize. It's part of its annual Innovista Awards related to innovation. The Dare to Try prize is my favorite because, as the name suggests, it goes to somebody who tried something that didn't work. So a couple of years ago, it went to somebody who was working on the hydrophobic coating of steel. I don't exactly know what that means, but whatever. They tried it, it, it didn't work. And the whole point is you celebrate people who fail in intelligent ways and learn something from what they've done, which is a great way to get organizations to continue to push fringes and, and frontiers. And it's something that when I first heard about it, probably about 10 years ago now, 
I've tried to spread it to as many organizations as possible. We celebrate successes in life, and that's good. We, we want successes too, but we want to recognize in innovation, almost always there will be false steps and fumbles and failures on the way to success. And if we don't encourage those as well, we'll never get the big breakthroughs. And then the Dare to Try Prize is one of a half dozen things in the book about ways to celebrate intelligent failure, which is a really key component to encouraging innovation. So, you know, you talked about a four-step model. One is that you have to first discover opportunities. Then you create something like a prototype of the ideas that you found really compelling. Then you test those ideas and then you, you know, scale up the ideas in some sense. Clay Christensen adopted a really childlike mindset when it came to his own ideas. He was always observing, going out to where the customers were, talking to them and always thinking. And he would say that your best customers will always tell you to keep doing more of the same. So try to talk to many more people. And he was unafraid to admit his own errors. Especially in his case, he made a huge mistake when he said the iPhone would fail, which it didn't. And the reason for that was what he went back to and fixed at a later point of time. He thought he had compared the iPhone with an existing product, which was the computer. That was the error. And that is exactly how one can refine the ideas. But really, the big takeaway for me is the ability to simplify can open up so many opportunities for innovation. Take, for example, photography. Before the iPhone was there, you needed to know about shutter speed, film speed, light conditions, and many more things in order to be a halfway decent photographer. The iPhone made it very, very simple. It lowered the entry barrier to becoming a photographer. And actually, more and more, the camera does so much of the work that more people today use the phone to take photographs. And they are unafraid of putting up their work because it looks good. Disruption happens at the edges. So one good idea that I think is worth implementing, which I'm going to do, is to hang around with people who are either substantially younger to you or much older to you, or at least belong to a different socioeconomic background. The other thing that you might want to try is to create a Dare to Try award in your team or among friends, much like what Scott has described. Um, when you think about innovation, uh, you also have a premise that innovation can happen anywhere. Uh, give me an example of that. When you say anywhere, meaning what? Uh, anywhere in the market, anywhere in the office, anywhere in the society? What do you really mean by that? Yeah, yes, yes, and yes. But if you look at it from the perspective of a large organization, it's not just the CEO who can come up with innovative ideas. Again, if you accept the definition of something different that creates value, anyone and everyone can come up with ways that might be relatively incremental, might be day-to-day -day things, but can be ways to do something different that creates value. There was a, a study I was reading recently that had kind of a, a, a shocking statistic when you first hear it, which is the part of the organization that comes up with the most innovative ideas is the procurement organization. You say, well, that's crazy. Procurement, they, they never come up with innovative ideas, but procurement's in the market. They're talking to people externally all the time. They're hearing things. They're picking things up. So because they've got the connection to the market, it's easy for them to see ways to do something different that creates value. So it can be done in procurement departments. You know, one of the big cases that runs through the book is DBS Bank, the largest bank here in Singapore. Their audit department is doing some very innovative things in a positive way, not, not, not crazy, creative, bad things, but finding ways to have different ways to more effectively provide services to the bank, to be friendlier with the people they're working with, blah, 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 blah. 
So it's not just CEOs like Piyush Gupta that do it. It can be done anywhere in an organization. Yeah, uh, Piyush Gupta's uh, ability to transform BBS is really quite a quite an incredible story. So I like the fact that you know when he took over the bank, I mean. Uh, DBS stood for what? Dull, boring, and something? What did you? Yeah, they, in the book, the, the one of the book's co-authors, Paul Cobbin, is the chief data and transformation officer for DBS, and he likes to tell a story. He started there about ten years ago. He got in a taxi to go to DBS, and the taxi driver said, "Ah, DBS, damn bloody slow," because DBS's reward for being number one market share in Singapore is the ATM queues were so long that everybody said, uh, you know, we bank with them because it's an institution, but we're not happy about it. Lowest customer satisfaction scores in Singapore. And of course, today, globally recognized as the best bank in the world, which is a phenomenal transformation story. And how long did that transformation take? Uh, you know, so Paul started there in 2009. Uh, Pew started there in 2009. And we're now talking in 2020. I think Really, by 2015, 16, you, you can see a lot of the journey has taken place, and, and of course, it continues. But it really was five or six years to get the foundation in place and really drive some of the big changes at the bank, which is a really important lesson. You know, some of the ideas in the book are, are pretty straightforward ideas about how you can encourage the behaviors that drive innovation success. But doing it consistently, doing it reliably, having culture change that sticks and scales, it is a multi-year journey, no doubt about it. So when you think about, uh, you know, in, in my book, Dreamers and Unicorns, I talk about leadership, talent and culture are the three uh, drivers of growth today. Um, and, and, you know, who sets the ball rolling in that particular process uh, of innovation? Is it the culture which sort of uh, drives innovation? Is it the talent that you have that drives innovation? Or is it the leader who sets the tone at the top? Which of these? And of course, one of the things I love about your model is the answer is yes. You need to have all three of those working in concert if you really are to have a place where the behaviors that drive innovation success come naturally. So leadership has to set a direction. Leadership has to intervene to make sure that the systems and structures are supporting that direction. The talent has to plug into that and the culture has to encourage following those behaviors on a day to day basis. And if you don't have the three of those working together, you'll get talent in that gets rejected out. Leadership won't do the right thing, so it'll be yesterday's culture, not tomorrow's culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I really don't think you can have one without the other. And it's really when you get the three working symbiotically that you really can get change happening. Now, you know, where you start, a culture is not an easy thing to change. As Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So, you know, trying to find a way to begin to get leadership to push in a different direction and bring in some new talent to enable that. And then have the culture change as people begin to do different things is at least one way to think about it. But, you know, the journey is always different. I'm going to shift gears and sort of take the whole idea of your book about innovation to the individual level. You know, not all of us work in a corporation. Not all of us, uh, you know, are working yet. Some of us are students. So um, what are some of the things that people can do to uh, improve their innovation quotient, if you will? Absolutely. So in the book, we define five behaviors that drive innovation success. And these are behaviors that anybody can practice, anyone can get better at. So let me just go quickly through the five behaviors and give a pointer for what an individual can do to get better at that behavior. The first behavior is curiosity. You have to question the status quo and look for new ways to do things. The simple thing that you can do there is ask prompting questions like, what if, why not, or how might we? 
The next behavior is customer obsession. You can't do something different that creates value unless you find a problem worth solving. You could very easily go and spend time with whomever it is you're trying to serve. And that might be if you're trying to launch a business and you're an entrepreneur, that might be a target customer. Or if you're trying to find innovative ways to live your life, that could be your friends, your spouse, your children, whatever. The third behavior is collaboration, time-tested finding in the innovation literature. Magic happens at intersections when different mindsets and skills collide together. What we talked about before about spending time with people in different demographics is a very simple way to intersect with different ideas. The fourth behavior is being adept in ambiguity, recognizing that in the beginning, every idea is a little bit right and a little bit wrong. And the only way you get to success is by trial and error experimentation. This is simple. You can go and run an experiment every day. Just try a new route into work, a new routine in the morning, whatever, as a way to condition yourself to deal with that uncertainty. And finally, the last word is empowered. You can't do something different that creates value unless you do something. So the idea here is what can you do? What can you execute if you had no money? Uh, what can you do with the materials that are readily available where you can just try something out. And the reality is, in the, the world of startups, people are launching businesses today using almost entirely freely available tools. So a lack of resources should not be an excuse. You know, there, there's one organization that we had a great conversation with, Compass Group, actually, in India, where its managing director has what he calls the 100 rupee principle. You know, when someone has a big idea, he says, great, uh, imagine you got 100 rupees to go spend on it. What would you actually go and do? And it turns out you can do a lot for 100 rupees if your mindset is, how do we have just a little bit of that jugad and figure out what we're just going to get done and start learning in the marketplace or equivalent? Oh, that's a brilliant one. A 100 rupee model, that sounds truly interesting. Innovation lies in the fringes. So it is no surprise that the parts of the organization that deals with the outside world actually gets to have access to the most innovative ideas. For example, the procurement team. But how often do you think of leveraging people in your procurement team to get great ideas? Or for that matter, like DBS Bank did, the best ideas they found came from their audit teams. Now, DBS Bank today is recognized as one of the best banks in the world. But it took them five to six years of work in shaping the culture, which actually means addressing all the three elements that I describe in my book, Dreamers and Unicorns, which is leadership talent, and culture. Okay, so let's bottom line it for everyone. What are the five behaviors you need to build in your culture? What is the culture of curiosity? Asking what if questions, being able to discover opportunities, create prototypes, test those prototypes, and scaling up the idea. That curiosity, that's the first behavior and probably the most important of the lot. The second was about customer obsession. The third was Collaboration, which is the magic that happens at the intersections. So encouraging more cross-functional teams to work, more cross-disciplinary teams to work, and building more diversity in your talent pool. The fourth behavior was comfort with ambiguity because certainty actually kills curiosity. It prevents exploration. And finally, asking what can you do if you had just simply 100 rupees to spend. That empowers the team to understand that Innovation is not something that is done through a large budget or a large team or something. It's not an event. It is something that you have to really eat and sleep every single day. Um, uh, Scott, uh, thank you very, very much. I mean, I so appreciate your taking time and you're talking to us about your book. It was lovely talking to you and I wish you all success.
And I'm sure our listeners will also find your book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, uh, really worthwhile and exciting. Uh, where can they find you and know more about your work? Yes, yeah, so thank you very much first for, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, very simple. I, I, I'm on all the social media platforms. LinkedIn I use most frequently. Scott Anthony Insights usually the keywords that find me. And then for the book, we, we've got, I think, a really cool website, www.eatsleepinnovate.com. It's got companion materials. The, the book has this tool called the Bean in it, the Behavior Enabler Artifact and Nudge to encourage the habits of innovation success. We've got 101 of them that you can download and a whole bunch of other things. So go check it out. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you once again sometime in the future. All the very best for everything. Thank you. Thank you. So don't forget to tune in every Wednesday. Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0 has been produced by HT Smartcast. To give it a listen, log on to htsmartcast.com or haan, aray, sunye zara nai nazariye se. Kya? Phir milte hai. Jaldi. This was an HT Smartcast original. HT Smartcast.